I want to thank all of you who are here today, especially those of you that accommodated a change in schedule for this service, and thank all of you that are guests. I know some of you have come from long distances to be with family, and we're thankful that you're here. Greet all of those that are watching online right now. You may not know that we're one church that meets in three different places. We have a campus in Southlake and a campus in West Fort Worth. And I think it's appropriate as we're taking up our offerings, I take a moment just to share with you that at all three campuses, not only are we celebrating Christmas, but in some ways we're delivering Christmas because we believe Christmas should be on the road. Let me explain. Last weekend at our Southlake campus, we held something in the community called the Breakfast with Santa. And over 500 people showed up, mainly from the community. Over 60% were guests. And they came and they got to be with Santa, have pancakes, do crafts. And one of the coolest things, they got to be with a very special guest and hear the story of Jesus over and over. And it was just a wonderful way to share good news with Southlake community. And then last Wednesday night at the West Fort Worth campus, they had something they called Christmas Village. They invited several of the local elementary schools and some apartment complexes where they're doing some ministry to come again for food, for crafts, to hear the story of Jesus over and over and to be with some very strange people. (laughs) It was an awesome time. And then, of course, here at the North Richmond Hills campus, there are simply more things happening than I can share with you. Small groups are doing things. Let me tell you what, uh, we have a ministry at one of our apartment complexes nearby, and some people go every week and minister there, and we had a Christmas party for the children that was really cool. We meet there every week with these children, we call it School by the Pool, and what we did this year is we got the kids to put on a Christmas play for their parents. So these children, some for the very first time ever, not only got to hear the Christmas story, but they got to act the Christmas story for their family, and I thought that was a cool thing. All of our high school and junior high D groups uh, have adopted families. Let me tell you about our eighth graders. We have a family named the Gartmans that have a special needs child named Danielle. Has some very serious issues she deals with, and our eighth graders bought Danielle an iPad with some very expensive apps on it that allow her to communicate with her family and let them know, especially if she thinks she's about to have a seizure. And that was their gift to Danielle. And I'm real proud of our teenagers for what they did. Last uh, weekend, the CEC that so many of us support had their Christmas party for the community. It was mainly for homeless families and some families with special needs that some local elementary schools told us about. And over 400 people were served. This church has donated over 75,000 pounds of food in the last couple of weeks to needy families in the area. And all I'm saying is that in more ways than I have time to mention, we have tried not just to celebrate Christmas, but we've tried to deliver Christmas. Because if you've been a part of this series the last several weeks, we believe Christmas belongs on the road. Uh, Many of our popular Christmas carols have that idea, don't they? Dashing through the snow. I'll be home for Christmas. Or that tender classic, Grandma got run over by a reindeer walking home from our house Christmas Eve. You think about that nativity. Everybody there had been on the road. 
Gabriel came to Mary and Mary went to see Elizabeth and she went back to Nazareth and then Joseph and Mary trekked down to Bethlehem and then the shepherds found the manger and the Magi traveled all the way from the east to get to Israel and the young family would soon be fleeing all the way down to Egypt. A Sunday school class had the kids draw the Christmas story and one little girl was showing her parents later and all the people in the nativity were in an airplane. And her mother said, now why is that? She said, well, that's the flight to Egypt. She said, well, who's that mean looking guy in front? She said, that's Pontius the pilot. Okay, I see Mary and I see Joseph and the baby, but who's that big, big guy behind them? That's round John Virgin. You see, everyone's got their interpretation of the story, but if you've got the right interpretation, somebody's on the move. Because Christmas is a moving experience. And you might think, well, the only one that didn't have to travel to get to the nativity scene was the baby. But I would disagree. I would say nobody traveled that first Christmas farther than God. In fact, I would put it this way, that God made the first and farthest move. And this should not be surprising because the Bible reveals a God who hits the road. He didn't just tell Abraham to go find a new land. He promised to take him there. He didn't just tell Israel to leave Egypt and go to the promised land. He promised and led them there. Maybe most shockingly, in Luke 15, Jesus tells a story of what God is really like. And in that story, when this prodigal son is coming home, the father gets up and runs toward him because God moves toward those he loves because love travels. Now, what I've just said is very important because most religions don't picture God on the road. In most religions, God is static He's fixed, he's stationary, he's unmovable. And that's why the goal of all the other great world religions is to create a path to teach you how to go get to God. But Christmas reveals a God who came to us because love travels. David Platt was commenting on this in his book Radical. He said he was in Indonesia. And he was having a meeting with some Buddhist and Muslim religious leaders. And they were discussing how much their faiths had in common. And as David tried to interpret what he was hearing, he said, let me get this straight. What you're saying is that it's like God lives on top of this mountain. And we're all taking different paths up the mountain. But at the end of the day, we're all going to wind up at the same place. Is that what you're saying? They said, yes, that's right. And David said... Well, what if God didn't stay on top of the mountain? What if God came down to meet with us? And they said, that would be great. And David said, let me introduce you to Jesus. Because Christmas says God does not want to be no long distance. And since we couldn't move up to his neighborhood, God made the move into ours. And no one has ever taken a longer journey. And it was all downhill. 
Because Christmas is the greatest demotion in history. Listen to how Paul describes it in what we think was one of the very first songs of the church. Maybe the first Christmas carol. He said, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And here's how the song starts. Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now, friends, that's a trip. We're talking this morning about a journey so mind-boggling, most of us can't wrap our small little minds around it. Because here's what Paul says God did. First, that God moved into our world as a man. See, Christmas is not the beginning of Jesus. Christmas is the beginning of Jesus divested of his Glory, intentionally. Or as one translation puts verse 7, he gave up his divine privileges and was born as a human being. The staggering claim of Christianity, and everything falls on this or stands on this. Because if this isn't true, none of it's true. The staggering claim of Christianity is that deity took on humanity. The infinite became finite. The invisible became visible. And what I'm about to say, I can't even fathom. But the omnipresent squeezed into an embryo. And none of us can imagine the gulf spanned by that trip. Have you ever considered what it meant for Jesus to be a man? How he went from being eternally present to being shackled by time and space. He who for eternity was always everywhere suddenly was only in one place and could only get to another place as fast as little legs could take him. He who had been eternally present had to learn how to use words like now and later and farewell and bye. He spoke the universe into existence, but he had to learn how to talk. He held the cosmos together, but He had to be held in order to survive. And he didn't enter into humanness in a position of privilege. If he had been born into a palace, it would have still been the greatest emotion in history. But he lived his entire life in abject poverty. Almost his entire life in total obscurity. He was born into the most despised race on earth. 
And he was born into the most despised subset of the most despised race. The Galileans. And that's what it means when it says he humbled himself. Because you don't humble God. God can only choose to humble himself. And he did. I've told you before the story of the missionary in the South Sea Island that was given a Christmas present by one of the natives who had become a Christian. And it was a beautiful seashell. And the missionary happened to know that this particular shell was only found on the other side of the island, that it was a whole day walk to get there and a whole day walk to get back. And so when the missionary said to his new friend, you didn't have to go to that much trouble The friend said, the length of the journey is part of the gift. And it was. Love hit the road. So that you could have hope for your own journey. Because this Jesus is not half God, half man. He's fully God. But he is fully man. Which means... That God understands the travails of our own travels. Or as the Hebrew writer put it in chapter 4. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses. For he faced all the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. And there we will receive his mercy and we will... Find grace to help us when we need it most. Christmas means that when you're really tired, God understands. Christmas means when you're getting ready for a funeral, God understands. Christmas means when somebody really hurt you, God understands. Because God has been on that road. And yet, he wasn't born just to give us sympathy. He was born to offer us salvation. I had a dear friend that was graduating from a seminary a few years ago. And as part of the graduation process, he had to sit for what they call oral exams. And you sit before a group of professors, and they can ask you anything they want to ask you. They can throw out a Greek text or a Hebrew text and say, read part of it. They can ask you any theological question, and they did, and it was rough. But the question that caught him the most off guard was this one. What is necessary for salvation? And he thought, well, I want to show them that I have a great understanding of all of Scripture. So he just started quoting dozens of verses about how confession plays a role in salvation and repentance plays a role and baptism can play a role and faith, of course, plays a role and the community of believers plays a role. And he threw all that out and he talked for 10 or 15 minutes and finally the professor looked forward and said, God, God is necessary for salvation. That's the answer. And that's what Christmas says. We had a problem. It's called sin. And Amos couldn't preach it away. And Aaron couldn't sacrifice it away. And Moses couldn't legislate it away. 
And Miriam couldn't dance it away, and David couldn't worship it away, and Jeremiah couldn't weep it away, and Daniel couldn't pray it away. And if Jesus had been born just to show us how to live better, he wouldn't have traveled far enough. Because love had to die. And so, God moved onto a cross for our sin. There is no other religion in the world that will teach that God would do such a thing. Christianity says God did. Christianity says God had to. Do you understand Christmas is the ultimate rebuke of every notion you've ever had that you can fix yourself, improve yourself, or save yourself? God is necessary for salvation. I've told you before one of my favorite Christmas stories was of the sweet older woman who decided she had gotten too old to travel To see family at Christmas. In fact, she didn't even feel comfortable going out to the mall and doing shopping for everyone. So this year she said, I'm just sending money. And so she got the bank and she got all the bills that she needed in the right uh, order. And she put them in the right stack. She got all of her family's addresses. She bought Christmas cards. She addressed them. She stamped them. She put the cards in the envelopes. She got them in the mail. And she's walking by the desk on Christmas morning. And she realized she had forgotten to put the money in the cards. And so on Christmas morning across the country, her family opens cards that says, buy your own present, grandma. (laughs) And so many people think they can do Christmas on their own. Listen, Christmas says... That Jesus was more than just a good teacher and a great philanthropist. Christmas says you didn't need a life coach. You needed a savior. And Jesus means the Lord saves. We're sinners. And the wages of sin is death. We have spent our lives doing just what Adam did, what Jesus did not do. It says he did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but we do it all the time. Just like Adam, the tempter is constantly saying you can be like God. And every time you've sinned. No matter what that sin was, at some level, you were saying, in that moment, my will be done. In this moment, I am the center of all things. And what I want right now is the most important thing to me in the universe. You are grasping equality with God. This is sin. To put yourself where only God deserves to be. And this is salvation for God to put himself where only you deserve to be. And this 
is the travel choice Jesus had to make. Am I willing to go to hell and back so that they can come to heaven and stay? Would love travel to the land of forsakenness? And we have no idea how much Jesus dreaded the trip. It says the night before the final step in the journey, he begged God, is there any other way to do this? And Jesus chose to go to a place for you that God had never gone. Forsakenness. He went to hell and back. And so the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, He had no sin, but God made him become sin. So that in Christ we could become right with God. He had no sin. That's why he had to be obedient to death. You and I are not obedient to death. Death is an inevitability for me. For Jesus, it was a choice. He chose to go where he did not belong so that you and I could go where we do not deserve. He knew he was born to die. And why would he make that trip? Because love travels. Or as John put it, God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. It's not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Al Lindgren is a professor at Garrett Evangelical Seminary. And he says several years ago, he had a day off and he took his junior high son fishing. And it was one of those days where the fish weren't biting, so there was lots of time for talking. So they were having a conversation when out of the blue, his junior high boy asked his dad, the theology professor, what's the hardest thing God ever had to do? And so like professors like to do, he answered the question with a question. Well, what do you think the hardest thing God ever had to do is? And he said, his son said, well, I was thinking when I was in my science class at school that maybe creating the world was the hardest thing God ever tried to do. But then in Sunday's class, we were talking about miracles like the resurrection. I thought, well, I bet that's the hardest thing God ever tried to do. But then, Dad, you know, I, I talk with my friends. And they just don't know God very well. And so I think maybe the very hardest thing God has to do is get people to know who He is. And that He loves them. And his dad said, son, you're right. It's the hardest God has ever tried to do and he couldn't do it unless he hit the road 
And so Christmas is God saying, you are worth the trip. And love fueled the journey. And God came to us so that we could go to him. And you need to know something. God is not through traveling. God means to make one more move. Jesus is planning another trip. And this time he will not come in obscurity. This time his kingship will not be questioned. This time worship will not be an option. Listen to the end of the song. And therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In a few days or weeks we're going to put up the red flowers and take down the tree. We're going to put the lights back up in the attic. We call it the holiday season. But here, Christmas is not seasonal. He who was born king is king all year long. And you've got to make a decision this morning. Is this true or not? Did God really make this trip? Did this happen? If it didn't, bow out. And if he did, bow down. And someday the entire universe is going to bow down. But wise men do not wait to acknowledge what the entire cosmos will acknowledge the next time God makes his move. When Queen Victoria came to the throne, it was the custom of royalty to go hear Handel's Messiah. And if you've heard that great work, you know that when the Hallelujah Chorus begins, it is the tradition of the crowd to stand up, except for whoever is on the throne. And so the young new queen was told, when the crowd stands as a symbol of your regal status, you remain seated. And she did. But she fidgeted. When they sang, our Lord God omnipoteth reigneth, the discomfort was all over her face. But when the chorus got to the part, King of kings and Lord of lords, the young queen couldn't take it anymore. And she stood up and she bowed her head as if to say, I need to take this crown off right now and cast it at his feet. Because one day we all will. Love travels. 
And God has made his move. Now it's your turn. And so pray with me, please. Father, how many weeks do I stand up here and preach truth that is so grand and transcendent that even as I speak it, I know I can't fully understand it. That eternity became flesh. That God became man. That sinless, holy perfection became sin. I can say these things. But we will spend eternity trying to grasp, understand, and praise you for them. Thank you for being the God that does not stay still. Who wants his children so bad he moves. And we want to be ready for your next move, God. So I'm praying now for every heart hearing this message. That it will move toward the God. Who has moved in Christ. Toward us. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's all stand. We will have church leaders down at the front. And I don't know what that means for you today. But if God's calling you to move, you need to move. Whether it's to move and come and confess a sin and be prayed over. Whether it's to move and be baptized. Whether, whether it's just to move and say, God's doing something in my heart and I need somebody to help me figure out what that is. But it's your turn to move. Please come.